I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. The co-founder of Doctors Hospital Renaissance says it's time to expand Medicaid in the state of Texas. Businessman Alonso Cantu spoke at a recent media appreciation luncheon hosted by DHR Health in the Edinburgh Conference Center at Renaissance. The director of media services for DHR Health, Marcy Martinez, introduced Alonso Cantu. Just say a few words for us on the history of DHR Health. You know, I want you to, to, to know the man uh, behind this this incredible campus. So here's Mr. Alonso Cantu. I don't have a speech. I'm sorry I wasn't prepared to talk, but let me tell you about, a little bit about the history of Renaissance. We started as a little surgery center. Somebody said 20 years ago. I don't know how long ago. But the idea was, uh, at that time, uh, poor kids were going to be allowed to get dental procedures at the hospital. Because, first of all, it took a long time and didn't pay. So a few of us decided to join Renaissance. It was already operation to treat these kids. So it started working well. And then we said, you know, we need to do something different. What does the Valley need? So our goal was to be, when we started as a surgery center, a small hospital, was number one, to not have patients from the Valley have to go out of 250 miles, 350 miles to Houston and treat them here. That was our number one goal. Number two goal was to get a medical school done here and get the research started. Look at all the research Dr. Rouse brought here. And as we all know, the medical school is here, the residents are here, the valley's starting to thrive. And the, I think the difference between us and some of the other hospitals locally, you know, most of us will answer the phone and we do different things for the community. And you can look at the record, DHR is always real involved in social responsibilities and fundraisers and giving money and making commitment. And if you look at all the things we brought here since we started, which is a, a level one trauma we're working on, comprehensive stroke center, maternal metal phoenix and doctors, specialists, subspecialists, that wasn't here when, when I was growing up. And even 10 years ago, we didn't have any of this stuff. But it was because of local people working together, making the difference, making the other hospitals do what they needed to do that they weren't doing because what your South Texas you guys are important and I don't care if you quote me on this I'm very uh, committed to the valley and I think DHR has been done a great job in transforming the valley to what or the direction we're going SpaceX comes imagine what that happens to the valley A&M's here hopefully we get more education I think that's what the valley needs but there's been also a lot of myths about DHR about being bullies or it's all about money and all that and believe me uh, I wish we had access to the information we need, but we have. We're just the opposite. And it goes back to, I'm a Mekon, I'm Latino. We tend not to help each other out. And it's frustrating when people badmouth without even knowing. But uh, the results speak for themselves. Yep. Dr. Rao wouldn't be here. This vaccine wouldn't be here. So anybody have any questions, changing the tone. I want to dispel some of this stuff about DHR, and I'm not here badmouthing in the hospital. I'm not promoting DHR, even though I'd like to. I mean, just giving you facts. Any questions before I get off? I think you told me to get off in ten minutes. Five minutes. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Cantu, DHR uh, is very well recognized for its influence in the Texas legislature. Uh, can you give me some 
examples of how DHR specifically has helped bring uh, state investments, state projects uh, to the Valley? Well, I can start. We learned throughout the process here that politicians listen to two things, two things only, that's money and votes. So we're able to start the Board of Health Pact where we raise a few million dollars a year. But we don't give any money unless people come down here and visit and realize we're not a third world country. Uh, you don't have to have body armor to come down here. We're like the rest of the state and want to be treated like the rest of the state. A good example is a medical school. It wouldn't have been here. It wouldn't be for us pushing and pushing and pushing and have politicians come down here. We, we've gotten a lot of grants. We've got a lot of appointments to, to at the state level that we weren't represented before. We're finally getting funding for education, infrastructure funded highways. It all fits. Uh, so there's, there's, we do a lot of those things that people don't see that's tightly uh, tied back to DHR. So that, the research we've been able to do, the grants we've gotten, it's all for the benefit of the community, not necessarily just DHR. And a follow-up for this session coming up, it's going to be very unique. Does DHR have any specific legislative agenda which it can announce? We want to continue being treated fairly because Really, for decades, we weren't really being treated fairly, and it's, we've proven we can compete with anybody, whether Houston, Dallas, or anything like that. For me, on a personal, one of the concerns is since the state collected less funds, whether oil and gas or whether sales tax, they want to cut higher education. And Texas is really 48th, 49th in higher education. So I think we need to work that people don't like to hear Medicaid expansion money, get it into Texas we haven't gotten since Obamacare, instead of sending it to California and Florida and bringing it down here spend it on healthcare and take the healthcare money and put it in higher education. Because even though Texas is the best state in the country to do business with, that's why you see all these companies coming down, no income tax, good quality of life, and more opportunity, we need uh, more money for education. Any other questions? You guys are easy. <laughs> I want to say thank you to David Diaz of Legislative Media Services for that audio of Alonso Cantu. The newly appointed president of the Texas Medical Association, Dr. Linda Villarreal, also says that Medicaid should be expanded in Texas. Dr. Villarreal spoke during a webinar hosted by the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to visit with uh, so many distinguished guests. Uh, and uh, invited me to be participating in this in this panel discussion about so many important things. Uh, on a point of personal privilege, I appreciate the, the congratulations. Uh, yes, uh, there have been 155 TMA presidents, uh, six women, and I'm the only Hispanic. So I think it is definitely a direction that we all want to go. Uh, medical schools used to be in the 40 percentile uh, beginning this last decade, and now uh, we have reached a 52.9 percent population in first-year medical students that are women. So whether it's women of color or the new term now called Latinx, uh, the idea there is that women in general are stepping up, running, representing our population, and I am very proud of that. Thank you very much. So. My name is uh, Linda Villarreal. I am a uh, practicing, actively practicing general internal medicine doctor in Edinburgh, Texas, my hometown where I grew up. I practiced medicine in the same building for the last 31 years. 
Um, I'm very proud to represent 53,000 physicians in Texas uh, as their next president, effective May of 2021. It is the largest medical society, state medical society in the United States. So you can imagine the impact and the ability to advocate for our patients, all our patients. But as you know, Texas has a very large Hispanic population, reaching uh, close to 50-60%, depending on what figures you look at and what part of the state is being counted. In the short period of time that I have, let me just give you some figures that I acquired. Uh, the national death rate is, is horrible. It's, it's almost scary. But in Texas, so, so it is as well. We have 32,000 uh, deaths in Texas but it is not across the board equal. Uh, geographical uh, disproportionate numbers uh, and in the Valley and in other pockets of other MSAs where the Hispanic population is large. Um, overall in Texas, we have reached approximately 40 to 50% of the Hispanic population. That's 40 to 50% of 30 million people in Texas. Uh, unfortunately, it is uh, about, uh, a third of that are uninsured okay. and has nothing to do with the socioeconomic levels, so to speak. Uh, but the pandemic has simply made a bad problem worse, uh, simply because of access to healthcare, lack of physicians, the uh, social uh, determinants of health that interfere with communication and education. Um, so let's just zero down to the COVID numbers that I have and what I do in, in my office. Um, the 50% Texas population, 50% of the numbers for COVID deaths are Hispanics. Okay. Why is that? Well, you know, uh, preventable cancers, prevention of diabetes, prevention of strokes uh, does happen but access to healthcare for multiple reasons keep it from getting diagnosed. People, especially in the lower socioeconomic levels, the multi-generational households where access to healthcare may not exist, or as I'm sure all of us have heard, no, 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 I don't wanna ask because I don't wanna know if there's something bad. Uh, so we, we don't have the opportunity to educate and diagnose before it becomes a problem, which then causes an increase in uh, cost of care. But as far as COVID, it's a very fearful disease that all of us fear, all of us fear. Uh, but the, those same social determinants of health have uh, allowed us to, have not allowed us to teach our patients uh, how to avoid the, uh, the disease, teach our patients about the importance of masking and social distancing and hand washing. So we had a problem and it has been a problem for over a decade or more, um, I would say two decades. Access to healthcare has never been good. Medicaid expansion has always been one of our most important messages to our state legislators. Uh, advocacy on the part of TMA has consistently been at the state house uh, what we call First Tuesdays, which unfortunately this year will be the first year that we can't do in person uh, to, to a greater degree. So we have to actually be creative in communicating uh, to our patients. How do we do that? 
let me let me share a story with with my experience. Okay. Unfortunately, all physicians have had COVID patients. All physicians have had COVID patient deaths. But because of our multi-generational households, the truck driver's son brings the COVID to home, gives it to the sister who takes care of the aging parents. Aging parents have no insurance and are fearful of going to the emergency room, so they stay home. Both the aging parents get the COVID disease and end up going to the emergency room where you will never see them again. That is a very common picture and one that is a real story in my practice Uh, to the point where when my patient was dying, I asked the nurse in the ICU to please use her cell phone to do FaceTime with the spouse so that he would not die alone or without at least having seen his spouse's face. Those are real stories. So how did that happen? Uh, Social determinants of health, uninsured population, even before the pandemic, but worsening due to the increasing unemployment rate, especially in our um, Hispanic population who serve a real purpose in our America, in our Texas, they are part of that population that is working and contributing to our economy, but they are in that population where uh, their pay may not be high enough to afford health insurance. Uh, And their fear of what we call the migra if they don't have legal status. But at one point or another, our forefathers, our our descendants, we are descendants of immigrants. So we, we all need to look at ourselves as immigrants. And reflecting on the story as the individual panel before me spoke in reference to us before, um, about 13 years ago, I bought a little red sports car that's really, really cute. And I used to have to go back and forth to Austin a lot, sometimes in the middle of the night after I finished my office. Um, my, my skin is olive brown, okay? I'm not a light-skinned individual. Inevitably, with that little red sports car that is now 17 years old, but still runs, I would get stopped. And one of the most common questions was, well, how did you manage to get this little red sports car? And my response, to be nice to them because they could arrest me, is I worked my butt off. I said, I have an education and I work. But they stopped me not because of the because of the little red sports car. They stopped me because it was a little red sports car with a Hispanic uh, olive skinned woman. Okay, so it is a real problem out there that continues to this day. So how do we fix it? Let's talk about the pandemic, the COVID in the Latino population. There is a disproportionate share of deaths, as mentioned before, but. I don't know if anyone on this panel or the panels before have experienced the difficulty in accessing the COVID vaccine. I can tell you, I registered with the medical school. I registered with all four hospitals uh, and I even went to the arena, never got the vaccine. And that's because I was registered. Uh, I was in San Antonio and I went to the HEB that was given, just got there just in time for them to run out. So if I have access to all of these ways by registering online or calling or calling my buddies or how can I do this and still didn't get it until two weeks ago, 
imagine the difficulty that our Latino population that may not have access to that uh, internet, may not know how to get there, may not know who to talk to. So we have a big problem in accessing the COVID vaccine for our population. I am now an employed physician. So I called my boss's boss's boss and I said, hey, we have 50,000 uh, patients within our company. Why can't I inject? Why can't I vaccinate my patients? In that respect, I would ask those legislators on the call to uh, advocate for our population to the governor and the federal government as well, to be able to get access to the vaccines where our vulnerable population is. Okay. So the problems we're having with the pandemic in the Hispanic population are the same problems that we are having with preventive care, access to healthcare, communication and language, communication in clinics, even the underlying uh, federally funded infrastructures, the county hospitals, the free clinics, all of them are also having issues. So we have to really fix the uh, determinants of health to be able to help the Latino population that in the Rio Grande Valley is close to 60% of that population. We have to educate that Latino population on access to healthcare, but their, their respect, their honor, their responsibility is if they don't have insurance, they don't wanna go and uh, see a doctor that they're gonna owe money to, and they can't get transportation to go to the free clinic that's 20 miles away. So how do we fix this? Well, education, access to healthcare, uh, PSAs, uh, sources of education within the community. Uh, I haven't heard much about the promotoras, uh, but that used to really work within neighborhood communities to help those individuals access their healthcare needs. That was Dr. Linda Villarreal, newly appointed president of the Texas Medical Association. I'm Mario Munoz, reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service.